My name is Danielle Chitin-Turanond. I'm a potter working in Chicago. Welcome to Cut the Craft. What are your thoughts on film? Oh my god, I am evangelist. Like, um, <laughs> I foam roll almost every day. <laughs> really? Whoa. Yeah. I need to get yeah. one. So it's worth the investment. I should do it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, I just have one of those firm ones that's like pretty long and I can um, kind of line my whole spine up against it. Oh, yeah. I had like a huge injury this year. So I'm like doing all this physical therapy and stuff. And mm-hmm. it's just, I feel like craft people, like, we beat up our bodies. Totally. You had a, a disc injury in your back. What it, what happened? It was just repeated stress. And I was doing a lot of plates, like small plates um, for holiday last year. And so when I do a plate, I have to get closer to the wheel. And so I'm mm. leaning over more than I would for something that's, you know, like a tall vase or something, because then okay. I can be closer to upright as I build it up. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the plates, you kind of get down and then, you know, it's not just throwing it. You got to hover over it again to trim it. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think something finally gave and I'm sure COVID stress and skipping the holidays didn't help either. So So is this why potters hate throwing plates? (laughs) No, I mean, well, maybe, but (laughs) I feel like I have a weird relationship with plates because, um, well, okay, so here's the thing. If I throw like a dinner plate, right, I will probably sell it for like, I don't know, if it's nine or 10 inches, I'll probably sell it for like $65, which is mm-hmm. to a consumer probably way too much to pay for a plate. Um, but from my perspective, I'm like, oh, I wish I could charge more for this, but I can't. And the reason for that is because, I mean, it takes it doesn't take that long to throw. People are always like, oh, how long does stuff take to make? And I think what they really mean is how long does it take to turn that lump of clay into something on the wheel? But it takes so much longer than that because (laughs) a plate needs longer to dry than other uh, materials or other, other shapes. Um, Uh And so you want it to dry evenly. So you kind of do a control, well, at least I do a controlled slow dry. So, I mean, after I throw a plate, I might not trim it for another week. Um, oh, wow. And so then when I, you know, it's, it's taken up space in my studio, yeah. um, which I don't have a lot of. So, uh, I, I have a friend who every time someone asks, she's also a potter. And every time someone asks her how long this cup took to throw, she always tells them however long she's been a potter for. Like it took me seven <laughs> years to throw this one. <laughs> like, oh my good. gosh. <laughs> I think I'm going to steal that. I think that's brilliant. Do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally do. Cause you know, that's part of it too, is like, you should be compensated for your expertise and your experience, not just the fact that it took you X amount of minutes or whatever to throw that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And then, I mean, just speaking of the planning part too, it's like, even after I trim it, it still needs to have another control dry usually for, mm. you know, up to another week, because if I just, you know, let that thing dry as fast as it can, it'll just warp or crack. Um, Cause it's a thin piece of clay that's been compressed and then like when I put it in my kiln it also takes up a lot of space and that same um, square foot footprint that a plate takes up 
I could probably put eight to 10 cups that are worth like 40 bucks each. So, mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> you know, someone's was like, oh, a plate's like $65. I'm like, I could have fit like 400 bucks where that was. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. But Man. yeah, the economics of like a wheel thrown plate, I don't know if it's going to work for my one person studio. Dang. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm excited about the rest of this conversation. Yeah, yeah. This is awesome. Um, <laughs> and we haven't even officially started. Oh, yeah, yeah, we haven't started. <laughs> well, welcome to Cut the Craft, everybody. I'm Brian. And I'm Amy. And we are here with Danielle, a studio potter working out of Chicago. Danielle, Yay! thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. <laughs> oh, it's so nice to talk to you. So for someone unfamiliar with your work, can you describe what you make and then how you fit within uh, pottery as a field? I make what I think is just Asian American pottery is the best way I can describe it. Uh, mm-hmm. I mostly make pots for food and flowers and all of it's designed to be used. Um, and I want all of my work to be beautiful and durable. Mm-hmm. Um and then, so the second question, I feel like I, I read this on the sheet and I was like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> like, how do I fit within my own field? I'm like, I think I got in my head about it. I was like, it, this feels like a trap. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Well, you know, it's our, our listeners kind of range from people who have no experience in the craft world and are just are interested in learning more. Uh, And then we also have people who are like studio potters who listen to the show. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes we, you know, people find it helpful when they're like, oh, okay. Like they do wood fired or electric kiln or gas kiln or they use stoneware, that kind of stuff. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Cause I like an existential way. (laughs) Well, you can get existential too. I like the existential things. (laughs) You just go there if you want to. You know, like I totally got in my head about it and I think I did get existential because I was like, oh, are you like asking me how other people perceive me? But then I was like, I don't know how I'm perceived. And then I was like, doesn't it say that that's how I perceive myself if I'm guessing that's how I'm perceived? Like, <laughs> That's perfect. You're like in my head. That's what's in my head oh, all man. the time. That's so funny. Okay, good. Amazing. <laughs> I just had a miniature panic attack and Amy was just getting revved up. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> that, that's what makes you a good team. It's like you got, you got both sides happening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I guess I'll like address it from like a few different angles. I mean, from just like a materials and process standpoint, um, mm-hmm. I think, I think I would be considered like a production potter. Um and uh, I, I fire electric um, because I live in the city of Chicago. I think it's like way more expensive to get some sort of gas like reduction um, atmosphere setting going mm-hmm. if you want like a home studio, which is what I have. Um, it's in the ground floor of my house. And I mostly work with porcelain and uh, mm-hmm. I do high fire porcelain in an oxidation environment, which is kind of unusual. Uh, I think most people don't like to take electric kilns up that high. Um, mm-hmm. But I have a nice one and it's like, it's withstanding it. So it's, um, it's all good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I, yeah, I guess I just, I mostly make functional work. So, you know, compared to other potters, I'm not doing anything that's like sculptural or purely decorative. Even, mm-hmm. I mean, who knows 
what people do with my work after they buy it. I'm not saying that's not what it is to some people. It might be. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just feel like I, I entered this field from, you know, I had this whole other career before. And so I didn't go to art school or anything. So I feel like maybe that's why I kind of got in my head about this question, because I was mm. like, Ooh, I kind of always have felt like a little bit of an outsider mm. in my craft, because I think when I started, people were like, oh, here's all these things you should do. Like, you should go to craft fairs and sell there. And like, you should make a lot of mugs and all this stuff. And I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. And these people were experts in my mind. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think that <laughs> I just found out over time after I tried all these things that people were telling me I should do that I didn't really want to do. But I was like, I don't know if I'm right. So, um, right. Mm -hmm. But I did those things and I hated them and then they didn't really work out for me either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was exactly my experience with going to find craft fairs. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. 100%. Yeah. I think that there's like some sort of like special formula with certain types of crafts people where like that mm -hmm. really works for them. Because I remember meeting people who were like, yeah, this is like a huge source of my income. And I was just like, I lost money doing this. Yes. Right. Uh, I yeah. think that that the uh, the the key little piece of that was the uh, prepositional phrase works for them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like everybody's got their own thing that you got to figure out what works for you. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, but it sounds like you and I both and Amy as well, both um, went and uh, found out what works for us the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I haven't been doing this that long, but I just feel like most of the time I've spent on it so far has been just trying stuff that hasn't worked out. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I just feel like every day I'm like forging a, a different path because <laughs> I'm like, well, that didn't work. So. <laughs> so what's working then for you? Um, so I found out that moving my work doesn't make any sense. I mean, I think that, you know, if you're like a jewelry maker, you can put all your stuff in a suitcase and it's really easy for you to move it. But if <laughs> I want to sell my work somewhere that's not my studio, I am careful. I'm taking hours carefully packing, you know, mm -hmm. hundreds of pounds of products that can also break in transit. And then mm -hmm. it's just a ton of work. And mm -hmm. um, so I don't I don't do that <laughs> anymore. Um, and I just feel like all of this is, you know kind of come down to me just, you know, trying these things that don't work and then realizing that I never had to listen to other people anyway. <laughs> I should have just been listening to myself and my own instincts. And um, one of the things I've learned about, you know, myself through doing this type of work is that I'm like totally obsessed with things feeling right which, mm -hmm. by the way, is completely subjective. Um, <laughs> and I guess what I mean by that is that it's like, it's authentic to my experience. It aligns with my, my, my personal values. And it has to be something that I, I like doing. Mm -hmm. um, so then I have that side of it. But then I also am a super pragmatic person. <laughs> so I'm trying to find the intersection of like, you know, those feelings that are right and in alignment with who I am and who I want to express, how I want to express who I am. But then also it's got to make sense for, um, you know, how to 
like this is what I do for a living. So right, the business. <laughs> exactly, and and so I'm. I feel like for me, the way I'm operating is I'm looking at those two spheres and I'm trying to find, you know, that 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 spot in the Venn diagram uh, yeah. <laughs> where it overlaps. I think it's one of those things that like you can kind of get down on yourself about like it, you know, retrospect is everything really. Cause you're, you look back and you're like, Oh, so dumb. I should have, I should have listened to myself in this situation and I would have learned so much faster and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, it's like, how else would you learn? Like it's one of the best ways to learn to, you know, supposedly do the wrong thing first. <laughs> Otherwise you don't have <laughs> yeah. any, like, there's nothing to to measure it against. You're, you, you don't know, you don't know what you're doing. I mean, not you personally, but like, I don't know yeah. what you're doing. It's like, yeah. I don't know if this is right. If listening to this person is a right thing or a wrong thing, like I have no idea. So right. yeah, and I'm totally data driven too. And so, I mean, even if I knew it didn't feel right, that wasn't really part of my DNA to just be like, well, I'm right. And this person has done it more than mm -hmm. I have. And they're mm -hmm. telling me that this way is the way to go. Mm -hmm. And it just never felt good to me to be like, well, since that doesn't feel right to me, like this person is wrong about what I should be doing. And so mm -hmm. I definitely felt the need to try it and to kind of confirm that it wasn't for me. But yeah, I think I yeah. would have been wondering the whole time if I hadn't done, you know, some of these things. Yeah. If I was making the right decision or, you know, yeah. was I just taking the hard way for no reason? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's, I mean, I, I just totally relate to that, I guess, is what part of the fascination. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. I understand. <laughs> and I'm sure there's a lot of other people. <laughs> I feel like you're, you're like give, doing a plot synopsis for my life, but just change the media or medium <laughs> to pottery. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So like you tried a lot of like craft fairs or just like other things that people thought that you should be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um yeah, a lot I mean, tried some craft fairs, tried different types of books and things like that and finally the the tools are seemed to be the best fit uh both like on the, like an emotional level and also I'm like, "Whoa, I paid an electricity bill." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think some other things that people were trying to push on me were like, "Oh, you should do wholesale, um you should mm -hmm. do retail partnerships, you should do commission." Mm -hmm. Um and those were all things that I kind of tried to do a little bit. I mean, Wholesale, I didn't really try to do, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, yeah, I just, yeah, I just couldn't do it. And I think that, you know, through trying commission work, it, it taught me that, you know, I have this thing about myself where I am very guided by my own values and beliefs and what I find to be authentic to my experience. And that really informs my instinct towards my work. And I mm -hmm. think you know, I have trouble with commission work because people are like, oh, well, I kind of want something like this and it's for this use in my life. And, you know, if I don't have that firsthand experience, I just like agonize over these projects and I just totally. spend way too much time on them. And like, mm -hmm. I just can't justify it because then I make duplicates too, because, you know, you never know what happens in a firing. You could just 
you know, make one piece, put it in there and someone's been waiting eight weeks for it. And (laughs) you open the kiln and it's broken. And so you always end up making more and then it's not, um, you know, it, it never ends up paying off for the labor that you do. But I think, you know, that's because I overthink it. (laughs) (laughs) What is, what is that risk? Cause that's something we talk about a lot with other potters is sort of the moment you open the kiln and see what went down in there. What is oh, that yeah. sort of like risk taught you just about managing expectations? <laughs> um, you know, it's it's a really weird tension with pottery because I mean, especially for my personality, I'm like a huge perfectionist and I really want to control every single aspect of the work, but then with pottery up until a certain point, like you can do that and then you have no control at all. Um, like mm. it could just get messed up for some reason. Um, and so I'm not sure if that, you know, if that factors into me wanting so much control when I can have it, is that <laughs> I, I'm just like, Ooh, I'm going to like torture this to the point where it's, uh, where it's exactly, exactly, exactly how I want it. Because then when it goes in there, something's going to happen to it. And I have no idea what's going to, what's going to go on. But yeah, it's, it's really, it's a really strange area to be in. And I notice that when I work with people who maybe don't, um, well, I don't work with that many people, but like when I've had people in my studio looking at my work or, um, you know, they, they're a lot more precious with it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know, they're kind of like, Oh my God, I don't want to break this or whatever. And it, I'm, I'm just like, if it breaks, it breaks <laughs> and you just make another one. Right. But yeah, I mean, it's it's just interesting to see how other people kind of tiptoe around it when ultimately I'm the one taking on all the risk. Yeah, that's that is really uh, just interesting, sort of like especially with something that I mean, we have a lot of handmade pottery in our house, and uh, and we're also we use it daily, so inevitably, you know, something gets dropped eventually, and it's interesting because like in many ways, those everyday objects are the most precious things in our lives. But at mm-hmm. the same time, they're, it gives you another opportunity to support someone else <laughs> right. or that I person that. again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's why when I buy pottery, I just buy lots of different things so that if something breaks, I can just get a new thing and it doesn't have to match anything else. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good call. Yeah. 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 I love strategy. that. Mm-hmm. I love that. I wish that everyone shopped that way because I, <laughs> <laughs> I have so much interest in sets of work or like dinnerware sets. And mm-hmm. it is something that I'm working on providing for people. Um, but I just sort of, I mean, that's not my impulse. I just want, I just want to mix and match everything. You know, mm-hmm. I want to pick a color story and then kind of like buy within that. And mm-hmm. like, I, I think other people are just like, I want this set. I want everything to look the same. And I just want to be done with this purchase. <laughs> 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 yeah. I wish everyone shopped like that. I mean, and I think that part of, you know, what you're saying about like the everyday objects being the most precious, I think they they gain that status because you use them every day. I can't tell you how like not disappointed, but just kind of like, 
I don't know, like crestfallen or like wounded I am when someone's like, oh, I love this thing I bought from you. Um, we don't really use it that much. It's too special. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, we'll like display it somewhere. And I'm just like, oh, I'm like, thank you. Oh, but, you know, yeah. I kind of wish that they would use it. But, I, mm-hmm. you know, obviously I don't have any control over that. And- right. right. <laughs> <laughs> you should just tell them that. Be like, Obviously, I can't control this, but I wish you'd use it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just like, oh, you know, you can use it. It'll, you know, put it in the dishwasher. And they're like, oh, I would never do that. And I was like, I go through a lot of trouble so you can do that. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, part of part of that is you mentioned that you get a lot of inspiration from food itself, like when you're making the serving ware. So to to hear someone not using it, you know, to put food on. must be difficult can you tell us about like how food inspires you to make make that work yeah um you know I feel like cooking is probably that was probably my first craft um so I don't at this point I don't really see it as separate from making pottery Hmm. um I feel like just I mean I cook every day Mm-hmm. Um, which I guess is not common these days, <laughs> but I make at least two meals a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just feel like that process of cooking and preparing food feeds into how I make pottery and approach clay. And um, yeah, it just, it's not, it's not separated for me. Um, yeah. But yeah, I grew up in a restaurant and um like I started working in the back of the house pretty young. <laughs> um, I remember I was like really small and they would have these like bushel um, boxes of Thai basil and I would have to separate the rotten pieces <laughs> from the good pieces. And that was like my first job. And I just remember this whole, there was this period of time when I was really young where I was just like, so when can I cut things? When can I use <laughs> the knife (laughs) I was like please I just want to use the knife (laughs) you're too young to use the knife and I was like I just want it but yeah now like my studio is just full of knives (laughs) (laughs) like for trimming the pots or just like hanging around just because um (laughs) I mean they all have a function but like I do I do cut a lot of my pots too like I'll I'll throw a bowl or something and then I'll alter the rim in some way with uh, a knife. Mm -hmm. Um, I was using an X-Acto knife and then I got this other knife that's super cool. It kind of looks like a point and it's like blade all the way down, but it's super thin. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's weird because when I'm carving the edge of the the bowl and trying to, you know, add this decorative accent, I'm holding it the exact same way I do when I like peel a a piece of fruit or something. (laughs) Oh, Um, interesting. Yeah, so like those skills just kind of, they're all, it's all mushed together (laughs) for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Do you, do you ever like cook something and then you're like, oh man, I should make a bowl that looks like this so I could put this sort of food on it. Does that ever happen? Oh my God, all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) all the time. Yeah, so... I feel like my biggest inspiration is, you know, when I have something really delicious or I make something and then I, you know, I'll try to find the perfect vessel for Mm -hmm. it. And then if I don't find it, 
somehow seeing that food, smelling that food, having made that food, I'm just like, okay, this is what would be perfect. You know, like I have, you know, uh, so a good example of that is um, there's this, there's this Thai sauce. It's called prick pow. And um, it's like a chili, like tamarind type thing, but like, it's really, really, really good with clams. And like, I'm from upstate New York. And so I really like eating clams. Um, They're not very big in Chicago, but I love them. (laughs) Um, And so I make this, yeah, you steam the clams and then you kind of like toss them in this prick pow sauce. And then like, um, you put in like fresh chilies and Thai basil and it smells amazing. And, you know, I had it on a plate and I was just like, this is wrong. Like, uh, this is vulgar. Vulgar. <laughs> 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 and so I I was like, th- I was thinking about it. And then one day I woke up and I was like, oh, my God, I have that idea. I don't know if it manifested when I was sleeping. But, like, um, I made this low bowl and I wanted it to be low enough to, like, hold the sauce well, but then I also wanted it to frame it, but you know, in an understated way. And so I put this tiny little rim around, um, I kind of flattened the rim to make this tiny little rim around it. And, um, then I like cooked it again and I had it in that bowl and I was just like, okay, now I feel resolved. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's so cool. (laughs) That is so interesting. Yeah. I really like that. I really like that. Cause it's more of like a conversation then because, you know, you're making this food and then it's like, um, it's like your, your pieces are responding to food also, you know, that's really cool. Yeah. I I think of it definitely as like a relationship and, um, you know, how are these things, you know, they're obviously not the same thing, but Mm -hmm. how do they come together to create, um, what I like to call like a resonance? Um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, that's when like, two things are on the same wavelength and then when they occur at the same time, it amplifies the signal. Uh, Mm. So I think of it as like when the perfect food gets in the perfect pot for it, that that's just like a resonant moment. And I love that. Oh, that's so cool. It's like, yeah, I just picture like (laughs) ripples going out like from where a pebble was dropped and just like, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. I just, yeah, and then I, you know, like when I feel um, that something's not in the optimal vessel, I kind of feel like this dissonance where I'm like, mm, yeah. I'm like, this could be better, and then yeah. I feel unresolved, and then I feel like there's this, <laughs> there's this open thread that I have to close. Yeah, wow, that's such a yeah, that's such a nice give and take. I would. I would say my process is similar, except it's more along the lines of like, oh, there's an adorable squirrel. I guess I got to carve a tiny metal version of that. Otherwise, I won't like, feel good. <laughs> right. But do you you feel that sense of like, I have this idea and I'm, I don't know. It's like, d- for me, it feels like my brain is like itchy. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. And then when I make, vibe. Yeah. When I make the thing, it, it scratches that itch. So would you say that's kind of like your primary, your driving force or like your sort, your, your well of inspiration for most of these things is this sort of this need to join food with its proper vessel? (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, yeah, you know, I think that, you know, before this year, probably it, it was, um, I still feel that way strongly. Um, and I do think there's a lot that, you know, cooking and pottery have in common. Like Amy, you mentioned that it sounded more like a, a conversation with like the materials and, mm -hmm. you know, cooking is like that, you know, there's a lot of tasting and like you have to adjust things all the mm -hmm. time. But then when I'm working with the clay on the wheel, I also am feeling it like, move away from me or like I have to persuade it to do the thing that I want it to do. And so mm. in my mind, those are the same. Mm. Um, so it's that same conversation, that push and pull and like with, with cooking and with pottery and like, you know, especially throwing, I feel like you get rewarded when you are confident and fearless with mm. the materials mm -hmm. and the process in front of you and so, you know, that could involve like just not getting scared if you're you're getting this walk screaming hot and it's smoking everywhere and you're like, yeah, it's still not hot yet. Like I think it gotta watch this thing move for like another minute or whatever. And because I know I'm I'm putting cold stuff in there and like, but you gotta have that resolve to not be afraid of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. North House Folk School teaches traditional craft on the shores of Lake Superior. Learn weaving and fiber arts of all sorts alongside woodworking, blacksmithing, and more. Courses for early 2022 will open on September 9th. Check out all the new courses and scholarship options. They're also accepting applications for 2022. Check out northhouse.org to learn more. At John C. Campbell Folk School in Brasstown, North Carolina, applications have now opened for their work-study, student-host, and artist-in-residence programs. For more information on these programs and how to get involved, visit folkschool.org. The Folk School has also released their January through June 2022 class catalog. To receive a print version, visit folkschool.org and click the tab Request a Catalog. Well, it's also interesting, too, because you have this sort of need to, uh, you know, make a sort of execute the specific idea in the form of the finished piece. But then there's also that going on between your hands and the clay when it's on the wheel. So, like, you know, kind of compromising to some extent, you know, that com that other conversation that's going on, I guess. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. There's this whole dynamic of persuasion that's happening I like um, persuasion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you have your hands on the clay and it's just like, oh, I got this air bubble in me and I'm <laughs> I'm I'm gonna mess everything up if, <laughs> if you don't get it. And you're like, all right, let me just find where it is. Okay. Oh, it's moving now. It's moving closer in the middle. Okay, let me see if I can like open the clay and, and just bust it out in there. Maybe it's not centering or maybe I wedged it poorly and it's, it's trying to fly all over the place. And then I have to, you know, I have to get rough with it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's a conversation totally with the material, but I mean, I find that for me, the, the food inspiration part is, um, is more connected to my work on the wheel. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I said like the inspiration, um, that inspiration was probably, the most predominant before this year is because, you know, I, I got, I have this like back injury now and I have not been able to spend a ton of time on the wheel this year, mm. which has been really hard. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I have a disc injury and, you know, I've hurt my back a lot in the course of my work, but usually it's just kind of like a tweaked muscle mm-hmm. or something that will resolve itself within like, I don't know, a week to four weeks or something. And so I thought it was something like that. But apparently disc injuries are different. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah, like the recovery timelines, like eight to 12 months. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just been really rough because, you know, I can't do the things I was able to do before without pain. And they have told me I will make a full recovery, but I have to change my practice. Hmm entirely (laughs) around it and that you know and that's why um there's kind of more of an emphasis on like slab work this year and like Mm -hmm. especially hand decorated slab work um because wedging and throwing is really hard on your body especially if you're doing it sitting down totally and in like a production context Mm -hmm. right yeah and like you know i'm not gonna say that oh this happened to me like i did this (laughs) (laughs) right right (laughs) i mean i i grew up being really active too and like i i played soccer and i did track and you know i was just active all year round when i was a kid and I think that if you grow up playing sports especially like with soccer like a contact sport there's almost Mm -hmm. I hope this isn't the case now, but like sometimes there can be like a negative um, emphasis on, well, not negative. It's negative that there's a positive emphasis on sort of gritting your teeth mm-hmm. through pain yeah, yeah, and just being like, quote unquote, tough and stuff. And like, yeah, I guess that works when you're, you know, 16, 18 and your body <laughs> right. just bounces back from like a rubber anything. Band. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're like nothing can hurt me and you know you're kind of right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I kind of carried that mentality into because I'm like I was I was really active and I feel like part of, you know, doing pottery and like wheel work and production work is that you like physical work. You like mm-hmm. physical labor. I mean, but it is not exercise. I just want to be clear, it is not <laughs> exercise. Uh <laughs> But yeah, I think that that mentality kind of, you know, I I never thought to shift it as I'm getting older mm-hmm. to be like, oh, maybe I should take care of my body more. Maybe it's eventually going to break if I keep pushing it. And, right. you know, right. I, I shouldn't be on the wheel like six to eight hours a day because mm-hmm. um, that's not healthy. And, you know, I also wasn't taking steps to make sure that my spine was in a neutral position when I was working, which Mm. you can do, but Mm -hmm. I learned that the hard way too. Oh man. So I I mean, with some adjustments and things like that, will you be able to go back to the wheel or are you going to, how has this sort of adjusted your perspective on the long term? I guess. Um, a lot. I mean, there's, yeah, there's, there's a couple facets to it. It's like, first of all, there's the self care, aspect, which is that, you know, I think a lot of us who do this kind of work, you know, not just pottery, like woodworking and like anything that's physical too, that's a craft is that we just want to beat up our bodies. And (laughs) we just kind of don't think about like, put, you know, what would happen if I pushed it too far. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like I never approached my practice before this in a way that, um, you know, I never really thought about, is this sustainable? 
could I break up, you know, my inventory in a way that reflects a more, um, yeah, I don't know, just like a more humane (laughs) (laughs) workflow for myself, you know, like maybe I don't have to be on the wheel for everything. Like I should think about how to, um, create pieces that can be, you know, rolled out on a slab roller and just draped over a mold and, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's going to be okay. But I think I did get into my head a little bit, especially in the beginning about, I think it's really important to build this skill and I want to be really, really good at this. And it's really important for me to make things on the wheel. And I think that that's the coolest thing. Mm-hmm. And I want to be really good at that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that I sort of put this value on that mm-hmm. that didn't need to be there. Mm. Um, and I had like a really eye-opening um, experience recently where someone, I do like local pickup for Chicago and someone came and picked up a bowl and it's, um, you know, someone that I chat with on Instagram every once in a while and you know, he's asking how my back is. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm trying to like not do as much wheel thrown work or whatever. And he goes, how do I tell if a piece has been wheel thrown? And you're just like, dang it. Why did I do this to myself? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's just part of, you know, like how much can you allow yourself to care about what other people think of the way you do your work or, you know, you're just, I don't know. It was like, I put that expectation on yeah. myself, you know, it wasn't right. that other people were expecting me to do wheel thrown work. It's not even that people know what that is. Right. <laughs> right. And so that was kind of like, I was like, Oh my God, I think I got to go lie down. <laughs> Jeez. But it was also like pretty freeing. Cause I was like, you know what? Like, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't something that, is necessarily important to Mm -hmm. everybody and that, you know, if I make something with my hands, even if it's something that was rolled out on a slab and, you know, I sketch something on the surface that that's not less than something that I threw on the wheel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like that whole kind of myth of authenticity sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think with pottery too, and especially Asian potters, there's like this whole mystical aura around like wheel thrown work. And then like, I, I don't know, like the, the stuff that I really respond to the most, like if I didn't have to make money, I would just want to make beautiful forms that were minimally glazed. Um, but uh, that doesn't sell well. <laughs> <laughs> People are like, why am I paying for this thing? That's just like, a way better version of something that I could get at Crate and Barrel, <laughs> but like visually <laughs> is not that different. Um, oh, yeah. Huh. Because, you know, I like porcelain and I, my favorite is just clear glaze over porcelain. But, mm. you know, that, that like clam vessel that I made, um, I made a version that was porcelain with just clear glaze over it. And I just thought it was like luminously beautiful and I was so proud of it. And I was just like, oh, this is just like, this is hitting all the right notes for me. And it sat in my store for two years and no one bought it. And now I just use it at home. So (laughs) (laughs) maybe you just need to sell all of those versions with like their own backlighting. 
so that way it just gives it this like sunrise at dawn uh, like aura. <laughs> That's not a bad idea. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that part of it too is that like I see other potters who are in Asia and who are like nth generation whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole mysticism around it. And, you know, a, a common question that I'll get from customers in the few instances where I will interact with them directly is, you know, how long have you been doing this? And mm-hmm. I feel like it's kind of, um, I get the sense that it's a little bit loaded because I think that there's this impression that the longer you've been doing something, the more legitimate your work is and therefore Mm -hmm. maybe more the more justifiable the price could be Mm -hmm. um where like if you haven't been doing something that long how could you how could you like you know try to make yourself equal to these other craftspeople who have you know but I think that's like I don't know that's something I think about a lot as like an Asian American potter is that we don't have the same sort of lore that you know these generations of like Japanese and Korean potters have. And then like in those cultures, there's an accepted, um, you know, it's sort of accepted and well-known that these are pieces of art and like, um, you know, people do use them at home and they're really expensive and Mm -hmm. people understand why. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas here it's, I think I started out trying to duplicate that vibe of, really traditional Asian style ceramics that, you know, I was fascinated with the work of these Asian production potters. And I just feel like that culture doesn't exist here. Hmm. Huh. Well, can you, can you kind of tell us a little bit then about like, cause both of your series seem to pay homage to that, that are currently up on your website, mm-hmm. um, like the Asian farmhouse collection and the Chinatown collection. And I love both of them individually, but then as like this duo, in fact, I'm looking at the open page right now of just seeing (laughs) these like very broad, bold strokes in one with very intricately drawn glazes on the other. Well, actually, I'd love to know more how you did that, Um, (laughs) but uh, because they're amazing. But just as there seems to be that sort of like these two completely different approaches to that, to, to those decorative elements. Yeah, um, I feel like it's, I feel like I'm like having a brand, a branding crisis right now. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, shoot, does it make more sense to go all in on one or the other? I don't know. But, um, you know, the Asian farmhouse collection really um, reflects where I started and what I was just talking about, which is, you know, trying to emulate those, like traditional Asian, Asian shapes and, um it, it kind of speaks to farm to table food mm-hmm. that's Asian inspired, which is really how I eat at home. Um, mm-hmm. I like just using whatever's around and um, making like traditional dishes, Asian dishes with uh, the ingredients that are around me. And so that's kind of how I came up with that moniker of like Asian farmhouse. Cause I, you know, it's evocative, but I feel like it also speaks to, exactly how I like to approach the food inspired part of my work. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I grew up in upstate New York um, in the Syracuse area. And so it's, it's not as big as Chicago (laughs) at all. 
Um, but I always felt like when I was growing up there, I felt kind of like trapped and I was interested in urban life. Um, I really enjoyed visiting New York City and Toronto, which are like the two closest ma- major cities um, mm-hmm. to Syracuse. And I just was so focused on like getting away from that environment. <laughs> and now that I, I live in Chicago and I've lived here for 17 years, um, I just really miss <laughs> the quiet life that I had <laughs> growing up. <laughs> oh, the double-edged sword. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I feel like, you know, when you talk about those two collections together, it's um, it kind of reflects like that tension that I have where, you know, I love, I love being back home and there's, I have so much, you know, easier access to nature and it feels so much calmer. And like when I'm in Chicago, I can feel like people around me, even when I'm in my house alone, I can just feel other people around Mm. me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But you know, like in Chicago, I have a choice between like 50 different Chinese takeout places that are super authentic and they'll show up at my house at 10 p.m. if I want. (laughs) Whereas in in Syracuse, if I want like decent Chinese food or something, like I have to make it myself. Mm. Uh, Yeah. So there's, you know, there's that like, I I sort of want my foot in both areas. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's probably confusing for people, honestly. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I love Chinatowns. And, um, you know, one of the I, lo- I love um, blue and white pottery, like traditional Ming dynasty area or era um, pots. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think that that's such a powerful visual signal for mm-hmm. Asian-ness, whatever that means, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is what I, I feel like I get from Chinatowns. Um, so if I'm ever in a major city around the world, I really love visiting Chinatowns Mm -hmm. and just trying to see like what visual signals about those neighborhoods are conveying this idea of Asian-ness. And when I was younger, especially like I grew up in a mostly white school, white environment. And I really didn't, I think I was like embarrassed of being Asian for a really long time. But I also felt this extreme comfort where, you know, if I would go to New York or Toronto or something, we would go to Chinatown. And then we would just go into these like Asian grocery stores, these Asian Asian restaurants and stuff. And, you know, everyone walking on the street, even though I'm not Chinese myself, like, I kind of look Chinese. Like when I'm in like Asia, people come up to me and they like speak Chinese to me. Um, huh. and I'm just, I used to get offended when people were like, you must be from China. And I'm like, well, because you're ignorant and you don't know like, <laughs> that there's other Asian countries. And then yeah. I, you know, later in life, I'm like, no, nah, I kind of do look Chinese, but, <laughs> 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 but yeah, like I just love going and seeing, you know, what's going on in those spaces. And then also I just feel like there's this shared culture of, I don't know. It's just, I feel like I can kind of relax and exhale and like, everyone kind of looks like me so I can disappear, which is something Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to do when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And so it, it creates this aura of safety for me. And like, you know, I think if you're in a Western grocery store, people are always like, Oh, excuse me or whatever. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. if you're in an Asian grocery store, people just, you know, like grannies kind of just like 
move you aside. And like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but there isn't this discussion of you're in my way or I need to be in the space that you're occupying right now. It's that we have a collective understanding that this is a space that we all share. And so I'm not going to say you need to get out of my way. It's just, I need to be here also right now. Yeah. <laughs> and that, th- there's not this discussion about it. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, I I love that um, blue and white stuff um, from you know the the Ming Dynasty era, era and mm-hmm. um, like I'll, I'll see it in Asian grocery stores. Not obviously not the actual stuff, but <laughs> the, the Ming Dynasty collection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at your corner Vietnamese place. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like there are these mass produced versions that I think they use like decals um, mm-hmm. typically and they're, you know, those dishes are like 50 cents each or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there's nothing in between. They're mm-hmm. like people aren't, to my knowledge, are like, you know, I mean, the, the stuff that's historical obviously is, you know, super expensive. And then like, I think there's there's artists in Asia who are doing that kind of work and it's gallery work and it's Mm. very, very, very expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't see anyone here like really trying to address that gap because when I see, you know, a traditional fret motif around the edge of a bowl, Mm -hmm. um, that to me signals that we're having a party and I want to see a lazy Susan, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so, I mean, I, I love all that stuff. And, you know, I dabbled in it earlier. Um, but I think that, you know, I was still in on my, like, wheel high horse, kind of. Uh-huh. And even though it was, um, it was really time consuming. And then I think there was something that kind of upset me about how, like, popular it was. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you were, but like, I don't know. I think I was just, I thought that beauty and form was more, um, subtle and understated and therefore desirable. And then I think that when I just drew a picture on a pot, I found that to be obvious in some way. And I think I was like Mm -hmm. offended by it. (laughs) But yeah, I think that's what I mean is that like, it's, you know, it's, obvious and i think i was kind of upset that it was um yeah that people sort of understood it more readily than a really beautiful noodle bowl that i made Mm -hmm. you know um but i think that really changed last year for me and this is before my injury and everything but um you know I feel like everything that happened with the pandemic and like anti-Asian racism and just like not really feeling safe in all the areas of like my community and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, seeing the murder of George Floyd, it just felt like everything was this huge gaping wound and it was like impossible to process because mm-hmm. there, there was, there were so many things happening at the same time. And so I, I chose to revisit, um, these two motifs that I had drawn in the past, um, the three friends of winter and a chrysanthemum motif. Um, and the three friends of winter are three plants. It's bamboo, plum trees, and pine trees. 
Uh, and they are a symbol. They, they're a symbol of a lot of things, but one of the facet that I was focused on was this symbol of resiliency because each of these three trees can thrive at the same time and that they can endure the harshest of winters. Hmm. And so I felt like that really resonated with the moment that I felt like we were living through. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just started carving those images on pots because it became a way for me to sort of meditate on finding hope amid this like landscape of despair that we were all feeling. Mm -hmm. And it became this therapeutic process for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then since I kind of found that meaning through it, you know, I was, you know, I, I could feel that connection that felt authentic and right to me. As opposed to just like the flashiness of the gl- the blue on white glaze. Exactly. I mean, it felt like ornamentation to me, I think, before I really focused on the meaning behind these symbols. Hmm. Um, wow. And so before, you know, before I really dove into the meaning, yeah, it did seem, it did seem just like flashy for sure. And I was like, oh, this is kind of like, this is like a, I don't, yeah, I didn't vibe with the whole, this feels right to me. This is aligned with my values. This is because it fit that other piece. It did Mm -hmm. well. Um, And, you know, I remember when I was making that work, I was like, oh, I don't know what I should charge for it. Like, what will people want to pay for? And then I was like, you know what, I'm just doing this for me and I'm just going to charge what it costs. And um, I was like, if people don't buy it, that's fine with me. Um, mm-hmm. But then I was surprised that they did. Um, hmm. So that was that was a nice surprise because um, I still enjoy doing that work now. And it's actually easier for me to do that work if I also put, you know, if I make the piece using a slab technique with like a rolled out slab draped over a mold, mm-hmm. um, because then that also will bring down the cost for the consumer. Because if I wheel throw it and then and then draw on it um it's gonna it's gonna be way too expensive (laughs) i just i think that's such a powerful um story though i mean you sharing that experience and especially i find it especially inspiring how there's this thing that sort of felt really flashy to you at first but then through last year you were able to come to this like new understanding and reconciliation and not to mention pretty much everything sold out. So it's like invalidation <laughs> too. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really cool to, you know, because I think that, you know, a lot of, you'll hear a lot of like therapy speak around like certain things that you don't like and you're supposed to call them opportunities and they talk about reframing, like, mm-hmm. you know, things that are hitting you the wrong way. And they're like, well, if you reframe it as like this opportunity or like the, and I always kind of had trouble with that process, but to actually go through it in a way that ended up aligning with my values was really kind of amazing. Cause I was like, Oh, I actually did reframe this in a way that works for me. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. awesome. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So my eventual goal is to just get so familiar with these symbols and meanings. And I would just love to be able to, create a story with images on a pot and, um, you know, have that, have that sort of fluency with it, where if I want to communicate some kind of message, I can just like 
draw these different symbols and yeah. you know you, no one needs to know what it is except for me <laughs> but i i yeah. think that you know the work wouldn't be satisfying to me if it didn't have some sort of meaning i love so. that visual vocab that's super cool amy yeah. it kind of reminds me of when porfirio was talking about you know um uh danielle we interviewed um a zapotec weaver uh, a few weeks Ooh, ago it and was amazing so incredible anyway though he was talking about um kind of these historic symbols that have been passed down through the generations of like corn and beans but how when he incorporates them into his own weavings now it's like they're not just replicas of those historic patterns that he's giving his own meaning uh, and his own experience. Mm -hmm. And that really sounds so much like you taking those, you know, the three friends of winter and this chrysanthemum and sort of now that has its own meaning for you. And you can take that visual vocab and take it wherever. Um, I oh just my think God, that's yeah. so I good. I love that. Yeah. I love that. He's like going in the same direction. I feel like I, I want to go mm -hmm. in because even when you look at the different meanings behind these symbols, they are logical. Like, mm -hmm. if you think mm -hmm. about bamboo, that's a resiliency symbol. But then there's also this idea of, like, forgiveness and, like, flexibility that mm. comes with it. And that's just the nature of the material. So, I mean, I do feel like I want to learn what's out there now. But eventually, I do feel like I can take a creative license with the symbolism behind these objects. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even if something's not a, a historical symbol, I feel like I can create my own. Mm-hmm. That's, <laughs> it's the beauty of symbolism, in my opinion, like, it's, it's, it's a tangible thing that points to something larger, but it also can be very, very personal. And so I think that's why people are so drawn to, to symbols and symbolism, because mm. it's, you can bring your own story to it. But the beauty of it is that, like, everyone has their own story that is kind of encompassed in this one um, like archetype almost. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a, that is a great point is that like I can bring my own intention to a mm -hmm. symbol, mm -hmm. but then when someone purchases it, it can take on a new meaning for them too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Oh, I love this conversation. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> this is insane. <laughs> Oh, it's so funny. <laughs> uh, I feel like I just talked for like a really long time. I feel like, you know, I've noticed that with your podcast is that like you, you guys like let people just go. <laughs> Come on. We talk so much. <laughs> I really? I feel like you guys are like listeners and I just, I don't know. Do you, do you feel like you talked about that as like a vibe that you wanted for this podcast or? You know, like, was it a design decision that, you know, you would kind of let people grandstand? <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think Brian and I both just naturally love to listen to people's stories. Um, and I don't, it's never been a overt conversation about what we want the podcast to be. We're just interested in other people. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it just feels weird because I'm more comfortable listening as well. <laughs> uh -huh, we gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would say, yeah, what Amy said, we didn't have an overt conversation, but I mean, like, 
No one wants to have another guest on the, you know, if you're listening to a show that's centered around having guests, like the worst is when you hear the host talk the whole time. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know a thing about space, but I'm a thing in space thinking about making things reflective of space in the space they reflect. How the large can be seen in the small and vice versa, i.e. tessellations and fractals everything full of the potential to be moving and things revealing themselves in steady, deliberate, still observation. Part of genuine wonder comes from finding reality unbelievable. The only present you can know is in your presence. All else takes time to visualize, from the naked eye to a telescope or microscope. It's just time and distance out there and inside, above depending on below. Not to mention the surface, which is the turning hinge. Kirk Lang is a jeweler and metal sculpture artist in the Seattle, Washington area who doesn't allow any time or resources to go to waste, even if there's alloys involved. There's meteors in this combo, and there's ore, O-R-E, in it too. But there's no O-R ore in this meteor-laden conversation. It's all meaty. And if you ain't into meat, it's even better for you. It's beyond meaty. Tune in with us next episode and try to hold space. You'll miss something if you just let it slip into infinity. So have you had any other personal transformations through pottery? I know like you said that you didn't go to school for pottery. How mm-hmm. did you how did you get into it? Was that a transformative process? Yeah, definitely. Um so yeah, I I got into it probably like 5 or 6 years ago, I mm-hmm. think. Um and I was in I was involved in different industries before well not an industry, but like I have a physics background, that's what my degree is in. Wow. And yeah super (laughs) random Um, but yeah like that's um yeah the point of bringing that up is that it's very male dominated in like industry I guess um it's a male dominated field and uh you know I decided at the last minute I didn't want to go to grad school and then I graduated like right as the great recession was hitting um me too yeah yeah Yeah, so I randomly found, like, this tech job, um, and they, like, taught me how to program and stuff on the job, and then, like, I um, I was in that industry for a while, because I think the mentality at that time was just, like, oh, my God, I have a job. I'm going to keep this at any cost. <laughs> right. Get one. Anything. Get it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so then I like, I kind of bounced around a little bit. I ended up like, I started as a programmer, but I ended as like a user experience designer and researcher. Um, and so like, I'm kind of more comfortable in your position of like, kind of listening and asking questions, <laughs> and, like, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, that industry, uh, as many people know, is also very male dominated, but is also just so like ego driven. Um, Mm. and I just felt like, you know, being in that environment 
and just kind of, I was at a startup too. And startups are pretty unprofessional environments. I'll just say that. But I felt, you know, it it felt intellectually abusive and it made me feel like my point of view was inconvenient and unwelcome. And um, I totally burned out and I just had to take a year off. Mm -hmm. And I was just doing different things like taking classes and I just, I was taking this, um, it was actually like a surface design class at this local art center in Chicago. It's called Lil Street. Um, and on my way up to that class, I walked through the first floor, which is their ceramics department. And I was like, oh, this is a class that I'm going to take next. Because then I saw all these shelves and stuff and they were full of um, plates and things to serve food on. And then I just instantly became energized and I was like, oh, I totally want to make my own plates and bowls and stuff like that. I'm going to take this class next. Um, Cool. And so then I did. And then, you know, from that first class, I was just like, oh, okay, like, this is it. (laughs) I couldn't do anything, but I was just like, I love this. That's Um, so cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I was just like, wow, I really feel like this could hold my interest for like at least a decade. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great testament for how well you know yourself, though, where you're like, well, I know I might move on to something else, but I feel like this one could stick around for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I remember talking to um, someone I used to work with about it and they're like, wow. So like you, you think this is like, you know, how long do you think it could hold your interest now? It's like probably at least 10 years. And they're like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and I was just like, I don't know. I just, I feel it. And, you know, I, I think that part of the reason I was so drawn to it at that time was because I had all these experiences that felt like they invalidated my point of view. They invalidated mm-hmm how I operate and move through the world and think about things. And, um, you know, I've always loved working with my hands. Like I, you know, at my parents' restaurant, like my sister worked in the front of the house. Um, she's, she's a very like conceptual person. You know, she's like an accountant now. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. she's like a director of finance at a hotel. Like, you know, she does that, like, thinking work. And I feel like I was always drawn to the back of the house where I could make things. And, you know, I enjoyed making like cookie sculptures with my mom. <laughs> oh, I want to join. <laughs> yeah. It's re- yeah. She like made all these, uh, they're called tweels and like, there were all these like molds that you would scrape batter into. And oh, cool. like, I really enjoyed that. And it's actually kind of similar to clay. <laughs> but yeah, I always just felt disconnected from my body when I was doing the tech work. And there's something so straightforward and primal about pottery. And I do feel like it's a healing craft. There's something about it that feels healing. Like I think when you are manipulating clay, it makes your body feel like it's safe. Um, And so I felt like I was super drawn to it because it felt like it was healing something. Huh. Wow. That's really interesting. But I, I've talked to some other potters too, and I th- they have similar stories about finding clay in these healing contexts that they're just a- attracted to it because it's, it feels like it's fixing something. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean that Amy, uh, that 
And Danielle, of course. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just Amy. (laughs) So that kind of reminds me of like our conversation with Akira, another potter. um, Mm -hmm. Oh, I listened to that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So it just so much of this is really uh, kind of parallel to that. I mean, obviously different fields as your backgrounds and stuff, but still arrived at pottery at a moment of personal and professional crises. (laughs) Yeah, I listened to that episode and just listening to him talk about his just career transition and just finding it later in life, having this whole other career beforehand, having a connection Mm -hmm. to food, just Mm -hmm. like knowing that he's a workaholic, like I'm the same way. (laughs) (laughs) I just kept being like, yes, yes, yes. Every time, (laughs) you know, he said something about how he approaches the work and how he thinks yeah. about it. I was just like, oh, I feel kindred. I feel validated. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> Gosh, I, I feel like it's so funny because I feel like through the conversation, you've already just answered so many of the questions. <laughs> totally. Because, like the, the, you know, what about pottery satisfies you? You just, you just seamlessly <laughs> answered that. And it was perfect. Yeah. I feel like moving out of, tech and stuff too and um moving into art or craft I don't again I didn't go to art school so I'm sort of like not concerned with these distinctions but um (laughs) you know it's uh it's an area where your experience like the definition of expertise is your experience Mm. and you're trying to convey your point of view and I just feel like it's, it just feels so safe and affirming that, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So like, what if, what are the, some of the challenges besides, you know, maybe the, the one that's popped up this last year with like the physicality of the work, like what, what have been some of the other challenges you've gone through with pottery? Um, well, I don't know if it's specific to pottery, but you know, when I started this business, I was very, um, I was very determined just to have a one person business. And um, I'm a workaholic. So I was like, I can do this, I can make this work. Um, (laughs) And I'm also a perfectionist. And I feel like do you guys talk to people about like isolation ever or? um, Maybe we just always take that as a baseline given. Right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just feel like I don't I I hired like two summer assistants uh this this year. Um oh cool. Just from like an art school or whatever. And it's really given me some perspective into what working alone in a room for like four years has done to me. And (laughs) I mean, I don't it it's weird because I I feel like I wanted to have control over every single thing. And that's what felt healing and validating at the time in contrast to the life I had lived before that. But then over time, I feel like, I don't know, there's, there's, there's this aspect of like almost self-indulgence in it that I'm feeling. And Mm -hmm. the fact that I am so controlling and perfectionistic, and I was able to create this entire, like, you know, society in my head around my work (laughs) (laughs) and like everything is exactly the way that I want it to be I'm just like is this making me like more irritable or 
like less tolerant to other things outside this world that I've created for myself. And like, I don't know if it's, you know, COVID stress or whatever, but I do feel certain changes and like, in like my, my psychology, I feel like I have more quick access to my anger. (laughs) Hmm. Is that changing me in a, in a negative way? And, you know, do I need to do work and bring other people in to keep me grounded? Hmm. Yeah. To kind of check those, those potentially negative habits that you're forming and nothing is there right now to like kind of challenge them. Right. Yeah. I feel like I'm on the super highway to be like a curmudgeon. (laughs) (laughs) There's a good song in there somewhere. (laughs) I mean, do you ever feel that way, though? Or do you think about stuff like that? Yeah, I I would say so. I think that um, there are certain like, especially if I'm letting someone like use my tools or something like that. and then I'm sitting there and I'm like my eyes developing a twitch as I'm watching them use it in a way that like, or like the file gently touches another file. And I'm like, you can't let them touch each other. And so, it's like, <laughs> and so I, but it's like, I didn't communicate that to them. Like that's my fault. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, right. And so it's sort of like you start to accept habits that you formed as standards and givens and project mm-hmm. those on everyone else without ever communicating them when it's just like Hmm. they're other people just learning just like you had Mm -hmm. to at some point and so right and those people are not you (laughs) exactly yeah so yeah and so you know maybe in their own practice they don't care about their files Uh, no I'm just kidding (laughs) Um, we know they're out there (laughs) I I don't know I think that that's true I think that's true for me too uh I don't I I'm framing it within the podcast though just like the 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 watching myself interact with another person to create something else has been really interesting and i think Brian and i have like learned a lot about our communication styles you know <laughs> or like uh, i think for me personally like remembering that how something like the way that I communicate something with my intention might not be perceived the same way that I think it should be. (laughs) And like trying to like, trying to like think about like put myself in someone else's shoes because I have a a tendency to be kind of like blunt and jarring. Mm, Yes. Me too. Yeah. And I'm like, well, why do you have feelings? Like what's wrong with you? (laughs) I was like, wait a second. Like, that's not a great idea. I should be like a little more soft, you know. What Amy's really saying is that she's a clear communicator and I was raised in the South and I'm full of passive aggressive tendencies. Uh. And and so what it is is that I read between not just the lines of text, but between like the kerning of every letter. And so oh it's gosh. just like, so then what happens is Amy will be like, Hey, can you check this out? And then I'm like, oh no, is she mad at me? And then she'll immediately <laughs> send me this copy and pasted string of emojis that's like the rainbow unicorn and like a hedgehog, several hedgehogs, all kinds of other happy, like happy. emojis that let me know everything's okay. <laughs> that's oh that's gosh. our uh that would be on our our pottery series of visual vocab symbols that we're building upon. <laughs> Amy, are you from the East Coast too? 
Yeah, yeah. I'm from okay. uh, like Southwest, excuse me, Southwest Pennsylvania. Okay, yeah. So as someone who is a transplant in the Midwest, Brian, I think Midwesterners are similar mm-hmm. to Southerners in a way, <laughs> like of that. I mean, I feel like my biggest issue with, um, you know, bringing people into my process is that I'm, I think I'm like Amy, I'm a very clear communicator and the way that I want to be com- communicated with is like, yeah. you need to say the thing to me the most direct way possible mm, and the most right. efficient way possible. Right. And apparently that is devastating. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't understand that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I feel like a lot of times, like I just need to like figure out how to do this because I kind of shut down and I know that the way I want to say it is not the right way. And then as a result, I don't say anything at all, which might be worse, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I can't think of another way to say it. Or I don't know how to speak the language of like the in between the lines, I guess. Um, It's really hard for me. Yeah. Maybe I could host a webinar. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) How to talk to feelings. Right. How to talk to feelings. I think that that's like, I feel like one of the things that's happened to me is that like, I, I feel like I did that for my entire life. And I just got to this point a couple years ago where I was like, I am tired of changing, like having to change the way I talk about everything to like compensate for something in someone else that I have no control over. Like, mm. I don't know how you're going to read this. So, read you know, it. I can or, say, or read it or, you know, interpret what I'm saying. And I can't constantly be doing that for everyone around me. And it's just mm. totally exhausting. And so I just stopped and I was like, this is what I think. And I think it was kind of like a, a swing from one polar opposite to the other. And I'm trying to like kind of find the middle ground now because it's, I, I think it's a little bit related to boundaries and um, in in communication styles. And I think, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be like your boundaries don't have to be made out of barbed wire necessarily. Like there's a way to right. do things with like grace. Um, Did you find that there was like a kickback that is causing you to feel like you need to calibrate? Yeah. I, I mean, to certain extents, I, you know, just with like working with Brian or working with <laughs> talking to, I think probably my family, uh, like my, my parents or whatever. It's like, you know, you don't have to just like lay the smack down all the time. You can say things with like a little bit more like forgiveness and love and, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and things like that. Cause I get like frustrated. What I notice in myself, yeah. is I get frustrated. I'm like, yeah, you want to know what I really think? Like, bam, <laughs> like this is what I really you know, want to say. But, and then that's not received well <laughs> yeah that's it that's exactly the problem i have so if you find a, a seminar or something you send me a link <laughs> but yeah i feel like maybe yeah yeah like craft isolation might be making it worse for me yeah yeah uh, yeah yeah <laughs> are there any other potters that you admire and then how about outside of pottery like other craftspeople? I feel like my number one influence is, um, do you guys know who Hanako Nakazato is? No. 
She uh, she makes pottery under the brand name um, Mono Hanako, but she splits her time between Karatsu, Japan, and Maine. Um, oh. And I found her early on when I was interested in pottery. Like I found her Instagram and stuff, and um, I was just so inspired by her. She has a similar relationship um, between her pots and food, and. Um, she just has incredible skills. She is like a, I think like a 14th generation Japanese potter. Um, but, uh, she is just so efficient, but like her work is so modern. And when I saw what she was doing and the relationship that she was talking about between food and her pottery, I was just like, Oh my gosh, this is exactly how I feel about it. And wow. She's, you know, doing it. She's doing this and she's talking Mm -hmm. about it. And, I just felt like that gave me permission, you know? Mm -hmm. I felt like, oh my gosh, I think I could do this too. Um, She's doing it. And then I ended up taking a workshop with her um, at Haystack. And it's just so, it's, I don't know. I was just so fangirly and I was like, oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Look, it's you. Oh, that's totally how I would be in that situation too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, you're working so much to me. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, okay, you can go sit down now. <laughs> <laughs> right. She, and she she's so cool and like laid back and um but just efficient and exacting and just inspiring level of skill. And she's also a very kind person. So mm. um it was amazing to have that have that time to like you know because people sometimes say like never meet your heroes but she lived up to the hype (laughs) yeah yeah and it was an amazing experience i got to meet all these other potters and i feel like we're bonded for life now and it's yeah we made t-shirts it was oh oh my gosh like summer camp (laughs) oh that's the best yeah Yeah, Yeah. it was the greatest um yeah and um i know outside of pottery i mean there's a lot of other potters like I, i could go on forever um (laughs) but yeah i would say that she's definitely like the um my main influence um Mm -hmm. in terms of just yeah shining the beacon (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh and then outside of pottery um do you mean like crafts it could be anything could be anything um i actually are you familiar with eileen fisher no she yeah, it, it's a clothing line. Oh. Um, she makes, like, these, like, beautiful, comfortable clothes for women. Um, and she's, like, scaled up her business in a way that I really admire because, I mean, I'm interested in the business side of, of this, too. And so mm-hmm. I look at what she's doing, and she's really, like, decades ahead of other clothing companies when it comes to sustainability. Hmm. And the companies, you know not that big. And she does profit sharing with her employees. There's like a whole recycled line of clothing. You can bring like your old clothes back to get recycled. And I'm just like all about it because I just feel like I'm, I kind of live like this essential lifestyle. Like I buy clothes and I just want them to work forever. And I know that's (laughs) not, that's impossible, but I mean, (laughs) you know, I can buy something from there and I can reasonably expect it to last for like years. Um, oh wow! And so I'm just, I'm just like, okay, great. Like I don't have to think about this. I'll just, I'll just mm-hmm. buy like a shirt from here. It'll be fine. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> It'll be uh-uh. fine. <laughs> I'm like, I don't have to think about it now. It's great. And it's comfortable. And yeah, there's like some, there's like some Japanese inspired cuts. There's like a lot of kimono style, like um, outerwear and stuff that I'm really into. That's awesome. Dang. Cool. Thanks, Eileen. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go yeah, shopping I mean, later. <laughs> it's like a yeah, it's like a corporation, but like there's a there's a company store in the suburbs of Chicago and I feel like I go there once or twice a year and I just like buy some clothes. No. Nice. And then I and then I don't buy clothes ever. Very <laughs> <laughs> <Ever> good. <laughs> oh. So what inspires you outside of uh, pottery? Um, you know, if I wasn't doing pottery, I feel like I would be doing like fiber arts or something. Mm -hmm. Um, I really, really like, um, textiles and fiber art and printing and all that stuff. Um, I really, really am into, uh, traditional Japanese mending techniques. Um, oh yeah. There's this, there's this person I follow on Instagram, uh, Yuya Kobayashi. (laughs) <laughs> he does a uh, good mending work um that is super beautiful uh huh. i'll i'll like send you the handle so that you can see um yeah the work, i'd love to see that yeah yeah i love um yeah i love this the uh the idea of like borrow fabrics of like creating garments out of rags and stuff and <laughs> uh, yeah and uh this uh this other woman aruna Kunaraj, uh, she wrote this book called Visible Mending. Um, and she I've heard does beautiful. Of this. Yes. Yeah. So she does beautiful, beautiful textile work. Yeah. I love the visible stitching and the mending. And uh, she inspired me to start mending my own socks. Oh, cool. So, yeah, I like to do that when, um, like, Jack, my partner, when he wants to, like, watch sports or something, I'll, like, <laughs> get the i'll get the the darning mushroom out uh that's that's actually well i normally default to knitting whenever it's like movie time oh my god i'm the same way when i like i i always have to like have something in my hands yeah oh totally yeah get real fidgety and stuff (laughs) yeah like i have this whole stack of like post-it size origami paper and i'll just start like folding cranes if i (laughs) (laughs) that's well so um (laughs) If someone wants to see more of your work, where can they find you? Uh, Instagram is where I mostly update, um, like push updates out uh, mon- at monsoonpottery doc- or at monsoonpottery, and then my website is monsoonpottery.com. Well, Danielle, thank you so much. I have so thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you so yeah, much for being thank on you. the show, I Danielle. Really. I'm so like, I saw all the people you interviewed before me and stuff. And I'm just like, I can't believe you asked to talk to me. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, Are you kidding me? <laughs> I was just like, so I was so happy to be asked. Thank you for having me. Cool. Yeah, of course. Well, thank y'all so much for joining us for this conversation. And also to everyone who has supported the show, whether financially or otherwise. A special thank you this episode to Megan, Ryan, and Mary for joining us on Patreon. Yay. Every contribution matters, both for helping us grow the podcast and for raising money for craft scholarships. Also, thank you to our sponsors, North House Folk School in Minnesota and John C. Campbell Folk School in Brasstown, North Carolina. 
A free way to support the show is to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps people find the show. And we also really appreciate the feedback. If you'd like to see more images of guest work or to stay up to date on other happenings like the class giveaway we did with John C. Campbell Folk School, please follow us on Instagram at Cut the Craft Podcast. Also, if you want to see more of our work, both of our accounts are linked in the bio on the podcast page. You can also email us at cutthecraftpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or guest recommendations for the show, or even if you just want to say hi. I'm not going to say it. I wanted to. I wanted to say hi. I'm going to resist. Okay, fine. Hi. (laughs) I feel so much better. Good, good. As always, a huge thanks to Brad Vetter for your graphic design, to the High Divers and Luke Mitchell of the High Divers for your music and help with production, and to Justin Williams for writing those poetic tidbits introducing our upcoming guests. Speaking of which, coming up next, we have an interview with sculptor, jeweler, and amateur astronomer Kirk Lang. So to get a little glimpse into our conversation, here's a clip from the interview. Thanks again for joining us. See you next time. The first time. I had an experience with astronomy, uh, and at the time, it it didn't really, it was really exciting, but it didn't kind of hit me the same way as later on. Um, was in sixth grade camp. I think mm-hmm. a counselor had a telescope set up, and it was pointed oh, cool. at Saturn. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you've ever seen Saturn through a telescope, it's it's mind blowing. And what's funny is even now I've seen it hundreds of times, if not more, like thousands and. It, uh, it's every time I look at it, it's still just as exciting as the first time. Oh, wow. Um, cause it just doesn't seem real. You know, you look in the sky and you just at the night sky and you see stars generally, but when you focus in on an actual object, like a physical object mm-hmm. that you can relate to in terms of like, it's, you know, a star is, you know, shining light, but a planet is a sphere mm-hmm. and it doesn't seem in a way natural, right? Cause it's like this perfect sphere out in this black backdrop of space. Uh, and then it has these perfect rings around it. Um, and yeah, it just was a pretty moving experience when I first saw that. And then later on, I would say in college, I started exploring it, um, astronomy, like reading about it a lot more. And I, uh, I decided to make my thesis work based off of the nine planets. Well, at the time, the nine planets, now there's technically eight, right? Pluto's been demoted, but um, yeah, really disappointed about that still. I know. Yeah. <laughs> R.I.P. Pluto. <laughs> we dedicate this episode to you. Yeah, yeah, Pluto. <laughs>